So we're traveling through the Gospel of John as a community. We're letting the Gospel of John shape our thinking, shape our relationships. And we've reached John chapter 7 this morning. What John does through the entirety of his gospel, I want to remind you, John was a very, very sophisticated author. His writing and his gospel is very nuanced. It's a very sophisticated piece of literature. And so John interweaves multiple themes from John 1 all the way through to the end. Themes like the identity of Jesus, who he was. Both Jesus' humanity and his deity are on display through the whole of the gospel. Themes like Sabbath-keeping and Torah observance, that is the observance of the Old Testament laws and the, the controversies. Like Jesus was a fire starter. He was a real rabble-rouser. And so John interweaves these themes of Sabbath-keeping and law, obedience, and then the controversies that Jesus caused. It comes up over and over and over in all the chapters. John explains the nature of true discipleship versus false discipleship. And then behind these kind of tangible, earthy themes are these cosmic themes of heaven reuniting with earth and God reuniting with humans and light in the dark and death and eternal life and the world and overcoming evil. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to explore some of the largest cosmic themes, like this huge 100,000-foot overview of some real doozers. We want to focus this morning on, for you note takers, the nature of evil. Cue ominous music in the background. The nature of evil, what the world is, and then the testimony of Jesus and Jesus' people in the midst of it all. The nature of evil, what the world is, the testimony of Jesus and his people. Let's read from our story in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Father, plant it deeply in our hearts and may it bear great fruit for the sake of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the line, the specific line from this little section of Jesus' teaching that's going to drive our teaching for the morning. My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Okay. <laughs> These are some heavy words for Jesus. Let's just clear the air, the elephant sitting in the midst of the community. Jesus is using some doozers here. He addresses realities that we modern urban San Diegans are honestly quite uncomfortable with. When Jesus says he's literally hated, hated is such a strong and jarring term. It really offends kind of our social sensibilities. We're tolerant and kind and compassionate people. Why would Jesus say that he's hated? 
Jesus was like a good guy. Everybody loves Jesus, right? The other uncomfortable topic that Jesus brings up here is evil. Now, again, our modern kind of scientific, enlightened view of the world, try as it may, has labored to do away with the notion of evil. And the secular hope is that as we humans are more and more educated, as we learn to tolerate and embrace each other, as technology advances, that eventually we're going to reach some sort of self-made utopia where there's no such thing as evil. Evil will just dissipate like a fog. Our culture tries to achieve this without God. So as Mark Sayers says, he points out that humanity, we want a just and a loving and a good kingdom. We just don't want the king. Okay? And so try as we may, as humans, in our own strength and power and ingenuity and wisdom, to build this social utopia within which we all live, world wars still happen. Injustice still tears our social fabric apart. People still oppress other people. And evil always seems to have its way, even in the midst of our best endeavors at being good and right and true and beautiful. The gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the good news, offers true hope to you and I and to the world. But for that hope to be fulfilled, we must first understand what evil is from the perspective of the biblical authors and from Jesus himself. So chalk with me here for a moment. When we think of evil, we tend to think of black and white, yin and yang, good guys and bad guys, Superman and Lex Luthor, Spider-Man and Green Goblin, the Bible, though, does not describe evil as an equal and opposing force to good. The Bible describes evil as the corruption of what is good. Evil is actually better illustrated by the Marvel character Venom. Any comic book character nerds? Grant, thank you. I knew you'd have my back back there, brother. <laughs> Let's go full junior high comic book nerd for a moment, just for a moment, okay? May 1998, issue number 300 of The Amazing Spider-Man. A sentient alien parasite was introduced into the Spider-Man universe. They called it a symbiote. And this symbiote, or this parasite, it infected Peter Parker. But Peter became aware of its nefarious and dangerous character, its deforming character. And so he cast out this parasite. This parasite, or this symbiote, it went on to infect Eddie Brock who, through the power of the corrupting agency, a foreign agent within him, took on a deformed and polluted and corrupted form of the original Spider-Man. He had all the powers of Spider-Man, but was ugly and dangerous in the way that those powers were used. Venom. Venom is the ultimate anti-hero in the comic book universe. And Venom is actually an excellent illustration of how the Bible describes and explains evil. Evil is a foreign body that attaches itself to something good and corrupts it. Evil is the deformation of what was formed in a good way. Evil is a pollutant in what is pure. Evil is a disordering and a deforming force in what was formed and ordered by God for good. And the Bible says that the whole of this world, all of creation, is infected and sick with this foreign body, with evil. It touches everything. Let me just give you a couple examples. Satan, 
He's the epitome of evil in our collective imagination. Satan was once a good angel, we know, from the book of Job and Isaiah. He was once a good angel, now fallen and corrupted by pride. It's a good thing. Another example, it is a good thing for, for us to feel secure. That's a good thing for us to feel safe and provided for. But evil comes into that good need for security and safety and provision. Evil comes in, corrupts it, pollutes it, and deforms our need for security into this relentless pursuit of always having more and more and more. Evil takes our need for security and good and provision and safety and deforms us and makes us greedy and competitive and warlike and murderous. Here's one for our culture, sex. Like saying sex in the church culture can sometimes just have like people's eyes start to twitch. Oh my gosh, where is this going? Sex is actually a beautiful and good thing. It is a holy thing. I promise you, God, whenever we say sex is not up there going, oh no, here we go. Oh no, I got to get out of here. No, God created sex. It's a good thing. But evil corrupts and pollutes and disorders sex deforms sex, and makes sex within the human heart about personal pleasure apart from God's prescriptions for it. And so evil disorders good sexual desire and then unleashes it without restraint on each other. And the result of that corruption of something good, this twisting of something good, it ranges from wandering eye lust to pornography to hookup culture, sex outside of marriage, Now, if you're LGBTQ here, the way that we describe that is your disordered desire is no different than anybody else with a disordered desire of pride or greed. But evil disorders the desire within the human soul. All the way to aggressive behaviors like molestation and rape. You see, when we start talking about evil, we get way out of the comic book universe. And we get into some very deep and painful places in the human experience. It's awful. It's awful, this sickness, this insidious agent that pollutes the world. The ultimate good that evil corrupts is the relationship between humans and God. Evil infects the pure unity that humans once had with God and destroys it. And so, ultimately, at the base, at the source, the fountainhead, the foundation of every evil work that Jesus testified was evil, every evil act in this world, the source of that is actually human beings' separation from God. That is the ultimate evil. And so this idea of a foreign body attaching itself to a good host, it explains why when we read the Bible, the characters in the Bible, they aren't exactly model citizens, not a one of them. The Bible is not presenting good heroes for us to follow. The Bible is actually explaining that even the greatest humans, their hearts are corrupted by evil. Just a couple examples. Noah. Noah is called righteous in the book of Genesis. He's delivered from the flood. And then in the next chapter, the dude is blackout drunk in his tent and some weird stuff is happening with his son. That's how nefarious this foreign agent is. David. King David, the shepherd psalmist of Israel. What a great hero to follow. He slay, slew, slayed, what is it? He, he killed Goliath. He kills Goliath. He's the hero of Israel. And then within a few chapters, the wandering eye lust leads to the pursuit of a woman that's not his wife, whom he gets pregnant, has her husband murdered 
to cover his tracks and does not confess until he's called out by the prophet Nathan. What the Bible is saying is that until, until you and I, until we together right here this morning, until we believe the hard pill to swallow, the hard truth to swallow that we moderns are so uncomfortable with around this conversation of evil, the hard truth that we, that we ourselves, no matter how hard we try, we are infected with that foreign body. Until we actually come to grips with that, we will believe the lie that we can be good on our own, that we can bring about perfection apart from God. Every human heart, the Bible tells this story, that no matter how good on the whole, is poisoned by this separation from God. And this separation from God is what Jesus said is evil. Did, everybody, did, did that make sense? It is this separation from God that every human is experiencing that Jesus said, this is what makes up the evil works of the world that I testify about. And so with every human heart being infected with this insidious foreign agent, it's the collective whole of humanity, the whole globe of humanity and all the history of humanity infected with evil that makes up what Jesus calls the world. When Jesus says the world hates him, he's not talking about planet Earth, the globe we're standing on. What Jesus is talking about is this collectively combined patterns of behavior and beliefs and systems of humanity that are all corrupted by this separation from God. And so when Jesus talks about the world, the world has a myriad, that is multiple, countless, innumerable institutions and religions and political systems and economic systems and governments and empires and social standards. And some of those governments and empires and religions and political systems and institutions, some of them, they have reflections and echoes of the original good of creation when humans were unified with God perfectly. But ultimately, all of these institutions, religions, systems, governments, and empires, at the end of the day, they end up twisted and deformed by evil, just like Noah, just like David, just like Abraham, just like you, just like me. And the ingenious and the insidious work of this symbiote, this parasite, this evil, is that it convinces its host that separation from God is actually better than union with God. Evil disorders our desires to the degree that we believe God's will for us is actually worse than our own desires, though they are diseased. Evil is so crafty and so subtle with us that we actually partner with it. It wants to kill us, and we decide to hold hands with it and agree with it. That's how insidious this thing is. And this is why when Jesus exposes the evil of the world and he exposes that human hearts are actually partnered with this evil and he calls us to turn from it, then collectively the institutions, empires, religions, social systems, all of these things, the governments, there is this recoiling at the words and the ways of Jesus, this rejection of him and ultimately what he calls hatred, hatred of him. Now why? Why this big setup? Why do we need to understand the nature of evil? Number one, first, if you and I don't recognize that we're infected with this evil, then we will never truly seek the antidote. We just won't. We won't cry out. There's a lot of talk, and I, I really, uh, I want to respect all the spectrum of conversation going on right now around COVID and the politics and the medicine. I really do. But this is scaring me. There's a lot of talk out there right now about whether everyone is going to actually take the vaccine or not, because no one knows who to trust anymore. I don't know who to trust anymore. In similar fashion, that's such a good illustration of what evil does to us. 
Evil, evil deceives us into mistrusting what is needed most. But when we come to this moment where we're like, I'm going to full sin, trust Jesus, and we allow him to expose the lies and some of the deformed desires that have been driving us, we actually become desperate for the vaccine. We actually have this moment of like, I want this out of me. I don't want this in me anymore. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be made free from this. And so it is only by seeing this evil that dwells within us that we will truly begin to cry out to Jesus for a new heart. This is the only means by which we can be delivered. We cannot save ourselves, so to speak. The deformity of evil and the insidious nature of evil has so corrupted our heart that we have to be given a brand new heart. And until we see that and want that, we will live in this in-between. And so this is the core of the gospel. Jesus came and he absorbed the evil of our hearts. And in a sense for us, in a guilt context, that the sentence that was due our evil, death, he absorbed that into himself. And he gives us as a gift of grace, his righteous and good heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the core of the gospel. And that healing, that new heart is received by faith. Faith is where you just, you jump, you let go, you surrender, you ask, you trust, you, you believe. You don't work for it, you don't earn it. You receive the gift of a new heart in the power of the Holy Spirit from Jesus And as you do so, over the lifetime of your walk with him, he will increase your resilience against the virus of evil. You'll begin to see light in the dark. You'll begin to discern disordered desires. You'll begin to slowly submit more and more of your will unto his will as you become more unified and one with him. Now, number two, understanding evil is so important because we must see it in ourselves to be saved. But second, when we understand the nature of evil, in our own hearts, and in the world, then we will testify to the world as Jesus did. This word testify, it's the Greek word martus. Everybody say martus, martus. I just want you to, I just want to know you're with me. Martus is is the word, it's what we get our word martyr from, martyr. A martyr is a person who is ultimately killed for their religious beliefs. Track with this. Infected human hearts hated the testimony of Jesus so much that they ended up killing him. And so in like manner, the testimony of hearts that have been made new and healed by Jesus throughout the history of our brothers and sisters have become objects of the world's hatred, even to their deaths. Neighbors, And honestly, you guys, just you guys, my friends, I I want you to hear this. We are in a transitional moment in this generation as the church. We are at a nexus. We are at a crossroads as the church in the United States. Here in the West, and particularly in the United States, we are going to be facing, and this may sound ominous, I find it quite liberating and exhilarating, but we are going to be facing more and more pressure as Christians on all sorts of different fronts all sorts of different fronts. As our society continues to abandon and jettison and reject its Judeo-Christian foundations, this isn't going to be a philosophy or a history course, but the way we think as Western moderns is rooted in Christian values. And now we're just trying to have the kingdom but kick the king out as a society. As that is happening, 
we who are following the king, whose allegiance is to the king, whose hearts have been made new by the king, we will be pushed more and more to the margins. This is what Jesus said to us. This is maybe one of Jesus' most important teachings for this generation of the church. John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. This teaching from Jesus is so important because for this generation of the church and my kids' generation, and I'm almost certain my grandchildren's generation of the church, more than ever, we as a people of Jesus must commit ourselves to prayer and not be surprised, not be surprised and overfended when we are treated by the world like Jesus was treated by the world. If Jesus exposed the evil of our hearts, and we surrendered to that, and then he cleansed us and gave us a new heart, that means we are no longer part of the collective patterns of behaviors and beliefs and institutions and governments and empires and systems. We have been taken out of that, completely delivered from that. And therefore, that system, that collective pattern of belief and empire and government and empire and institution will hate what is exposed by our very existence. This, loved ones, is not radical Christianity. This is normal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. This has been normal Christianity for all of our brothers and sisters through all of history around almost every major nation on the globe. A key marker of being Jesus's people is that at somewhere in our life, we experience some sort of pressure from family member, friend, foe, boss, Professor, somewhere along the line, our Christian witness, our testimony of a new heart, unsettles somebody whose heart has yet to be healed, and we experience pressure, push, margin, oppression, and loss. That's normal. That's normal Christianity. And in our culture, thank God, honestly, it's still a polite hatred. Like We're a very polite society. And so it's kind of a, a push to the side. It's an unspoken and sometimes spoken disdain or mockery of our archaic and strange beliefs about singleness, or marriage, or family, or sex, or money, or politics, or anything else. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a full, like, I'm going to tie you up to the stake and burn you there. It's more like, weird. <laughs> weird. And we've all experienced that if we're walking with Jesus. It's maybe a loss of promotion at work. Increasingly in law and medical professions, it may be that you don't get into that school because of your convictions. It's that subtle separation that happens when you just suddenly realize, oh, I'm definitely not part of the in crowd. I'm very different from this crowd. I live right here in South Park. We live right around the corner. The day after the elections, I'm not, a, I'm not political. And I, Biden, Trump, I really don't care. But it was weird. The day after the elections, there was this massive, like, horns honking and flags everywhere. And I was walking through my neighborhood just praying for people. And I just, I had this moment where I was like, man, I am way different. I'm way different than the Trump crowd. I'm way different than the Biden crowd. I'm like a foreign man in a foreign land. And that's good. That's normal Christianity to feel out of place, out of joint. We don't fit. We shouldn't fit. Jesus didn't fit. As time goes on, my friends, polite hatred throughout the history of the church has always intensified to greater and greater levels of persecution. Always. 
It's just been the nature of how evil amplifies and intensifies within society. And God's people have always been selected and chosen for each generation to be that presence of exposure in the midst of it all. And that brings us back to the second reason for understanding evil and evil in our own hearts in the world. It's how we testify. What are we to do? How do we testify to a world that may hate us? We follow Jesus. Think about Jesus. The world hated him, but Jesus didn't come to war against the world. He didn't come to conquer the world. He actually came to comfort the world. Jesus also was not repulsed by the evil of the world. Jesus didn't look at the deformities of the desires of any human being, greed, pride, oppression, sexual misplacement of desire, any of these. And Jesus was like, oh, I'm, I'm. no, Jesus entered into the deformities of the world. He did not abandon the world. He intentionally entered the world as an agent of healing. Jesus didn't fight the world. He didn't flee from the world. He loved the world. John 3, 16. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus understood that our world, this world, the systems and governments and empires has been wounded, wounded by evil. And so Jesus himself chose to be mortally wounded by the hatred of the world on the cross for its healing. And so in a reconciling, selfless, non-combative, non-retaliatory, non-violent way, Jesus absorbed the world's hatred into himself to love it, to heal it, and to save it. You and I, this morning, animated by the Holy Spirit, this is why I call you to a commitment to community and family, we are now the body of Jesus in this world together. Together we are the body of Jesus in this world. And we are not to take this, woe is us, the world hates us, we're helpless victims of the world's hatred. That's not who we are. We are not to hide out and lament how hard our lives are because we're losing religious liberty in this generation. We have been sent by Jesus into this world as wounded healers to love it. And so too, even when we are hated, or actually most importantly, especially when we experience hatred or pressure or oppression, we are empowered in the moment by the Holy Spirit as Jesus has healed people to absorb that hatred into ourselves and to love our enemy, to love the one that hates us. We don't flee in revulsion. We don't fight in rage. We love as Jesus did. And you and I, this tiny little church plant and church plants across San Diego, and the church, it exists in this infected world as an inoculating force against the virus of evil. In some ways, you might say the church is the vaccine that heals, truly, in the power of the Spirit, by the blood of Jesus. We're going to come to communion now. Nate, you can come on up. And I'll set up communion for us. As we come to communion this morning, we take communion every week at Neighbors. It's a way of remembering what Jesus did for us. I'd like us to reflect on three things. Number one, take time, as difficult as it is, as offensive as it is to our social sensibilities, let's take time and reflect on the nature of evil. In our own hearts, even. Where there's been deformity, where there's been pride, greed, lust, Anger, rage, impatience, all of these things are the wounds. They're the wounds of a heart that has been deformed by evil. 
And you don't need to reflect on this and then come to Jesus saying, I'll get it right. I'll get it fixed. I'll do more church. I'll read more Bible. I, I will do it all right. I will fix this. I will heal myself. No, you come and you allow him to just expose these places in your heart. He doesn't humiliate you. He's not there to crush you. You let him comfort you. He comes as a physician, as a wise and kind and perfect doctor who says, here's the disease, and I'm going to show you how it's been affecting this desire and how it's been hurting you. And you don't have to do anything say, Jesus, just heal me. Heal me. Comfort me. Take, this is my body. This is my blood given for your healing. Number two, as we come to communion this morning and we reflect on the cross and we remember the cross, let's reflect on the world, the world that we've been delivered from. We have been chosen to be his. We are no longer part of this broken system infected with sin and evil. It's something to rejoice in. And we need to reflect on the responsibility of, of being his ambassador in the world, of being that inoculating force in the world. And then finally, as we reflect on the testimony that Jesus gave to the world and that we give to the world just by our presence, honestly, I would like us to do that without fear, without fear. Do not be afraid. Here's what Jesus said. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We're not to listen to some ominous Sunday morning sermon about the great persecution that's coming and find ourselves having anxiety well up in our hearts, I think rather peace should well up in our hearts. And we settle in under the, the great and good and gracious shepherd who says, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you. Jesus overcame the evil of this world with ultimate good, sacrificial good for you. You can totally trust him. You can totally lay down your life in him. He has nothing but good for you. Jesus, he heals this world, not by hating it back, but with love. Maybe this morning in communion, there might be somebody that, yeah, you know, they're that guy, they're that gal. There's a lot of pain there. Maybe it's this political cycle you're either through the roof right now, happy or terrified. I don't think either one of those are options for Christians. I really don't. I think God would have you to love and rest in his peace and trust. And the truth is, this morning as we come to communion, reflect deeply on the fact that God chose you out of this world and that you are his. And that now he sends you back into this world so healed and so full of his love so that even the hardest words and the hardest moments of oppression and persecution only bring more peace. And it's even in those moments that sometimes the greatest persecutors, the ones that you think are so against Christianity, they become the pastors and preachers and revival leaders of the next generation. They really do. It's a great time. It's for such a time as this that you've been called to be a follower of Jesus. It's in this generation that you've been called out of the world and sent into the world. And so respond by faith and obedience. Uh, my wife Alexis will be up here uh, with the communion elements. We have little uh, COVID-protected cups and, um, and 
bread. And so I'd invite you during this first song to go ahead and come forward and she'll hand you this and then go back to your seat and, and wait. And we'll have a little communion meditation to take with us for the rest of the afternoon. Father, as we um, now enter into a time of song and reflection, I want to just slow us down a little bit. No need to rush. Help us to reflect with you, Holy Spirit, where our own hearts, God, you're healing and how you're healing them. Help us not to hide from the darkness that's within ourselves. Let light shine in all those corners. Jesus, I pray for, for that one this morning where the evil of this world has done such damage to their souls. They were hurt, like physically, physically hurt. Jesus, you know that hurt. You absorbed the hurt of this world. You were beaten and crushed. God, you came to be crushed by the world, not to crush it. And so for this person that's in so much pain this morning, I just pray that right now would be a moment where you, their creator, would come and so wrap yourself around them, and hold them, and let them know that you are with them. You were, you've never left them. You've never forsaken them. That even their worst pain, God, you can bring healing to as they rest and trust and release themselves to you. God, as we prepare to sing to you, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Have your way with me. I offer my body and these bodies to you as a living sacrifice. And until you come, Lord Jesus, may we with courage and strength and conviction love this world, die for this world, serve this world, wash the feet of not only our friends, but even our, our worst foes, our enemies. Make neighbors in the church here in San Diego an agent of healing. Bring revival, Lord. Bring renewal. Starting with the internal parts of ourselves. We just give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we all stand, and as we start to sing, uh, my wife will be up here in front. You can come up and grab your communion. And parents, feel free to go grab your children also.